In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Tonight, our Bible study, Psalm 70. Each psalm has a title, and the title of this psalm is To the Chief Musician, a psalm of David to bring to remembrance. Chief musician, some believe, is reference to the Lord Jesus Christ, but others suppose him to be the leader of choirs or musician in David's time, as he meant the singer or asaph. And according to the title, David is the author of this psalm. Then, in the title, it's written to bring to remembrance. Meaning what? Either means it is composed to David, beseeching the Lord to remember the afflictions of David and to remember his promises of help and deliverance. So he is appealing to God to remember his promises of deliverance, especially David in time of affliction. But others, he says, it should be changed into to make memorial or for making the memorial. And instead of to bring to remembrance, it should be to make memorial for, or for making the memorial. Because in the Old Testament offering, especially in the offering of incense, it was mentioned it is a memorial, as we read in Leviticus chapter 24, verse 7, and you shall put pure frankincense on each row, that it may be on the bread for a memorial, an offering made by fire to the Lord. So this psalm was chanted in the liturgy of offering incense. So this psalm is written as a note of liturgical use of the psalm in connection with the offering of incense. Also in Numbers chapter 10 verse 10 we read, Also in the day of your gladness, in your appointed feasts, and at the beginning of your month, you shall blow the trumpets, over your burnt offerings and over the sacrifices of your peace offerings and they shall be a memorial for you before your God I am the Lord your God so others said this psalm is written to be chanted during the feasts during the beginning of the month because it's considered a Jewish feast so this psalm is chanted during the feast in which incense and the sacrifices are offered as a memorial before the Lord. Also the phrase to make a memorial of incense, we find it in Isaiah 66 verse 3. And for the connection of prayer with the offering of incense, connection of a psalm chanted or a prayer chanted during the offering of incense, 
we find it in book of Numbers, chapter 16, verse 46, and also in Luke chapter 1, verse 9 and verse 10, when Zechariah was offering incense in the altar. Also, this psalm is a prayer from an individual, almost a kind of sigh from this person of faith who seeks divine protection. A person going through a difficult time, so he is sighing and pleading with God for divine protection. It is a call to God for deliverance and help to come quickly. And this psalm actually is almost word for word with the last five verses of Psalm 40. And if you check the last five verses of Psalm 40, you will find it word by word like Psalm 70. And some believe this psalm is an extension to Psalm 69 and introduction to Psalm 71. In a sermon by St. Augustine on a feast of the martyrs, he interpreted this psalm, counting it as a poem presented to God the Father by his Son Jesus Christ in the name of the suffering members of his body, the martyrs in particular. So the martyrs are the body of Christ. So the head, Christ, is actually pleading with the Father to come for protection. He considered it as a church, St. Augustine considered this psalm as a church song concerning the martyrs. And it's beautiful that we study the psalm tonight, especially today we celebrate the martyrdom of St. Rebecca and her children, the martyrs. So he considered this psalm as a church song concerning the martyrs who followed the lead of their head, Jesus Christ, who through his own free will chose to be buried as a grain of wheat to produce much grain. That's why this psalm we prayed in the sixth hour of the Agbeya, because as I told you, it is the cry of the suffering Christ to the Father. So, at the sixth hour, we remember the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is a psalm for times of struggle, temptation, and desperation. Also, we pray it in the first hour of the Agbeya. So, this psalm, we pray it in the first hour of the Agbeya because it is beautiful to start the day by asking God, make haste, O God, to deliver me, make haste to help me, O Lord. So we pray the psalm in the first hour of the Agbeya, and in the sixth hour, because in the sixth hour we remember the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. This psalm is a short psalm, only five verses. Verse 1, prayer for his speedy deliverance. 2 and 3, prayer against his adversaries. 4, calling God's people to praise. 5, David urges God's speedy deliverance. So, verse 1, Make haste, O God, 
to deliver me. Make haste to help me, O Lord. In the first half, he said God. In the second half, he said, O Lord. So David is asking God to bring help with haste. As if he is saying, if deliverance was too long delayed, it was of no help at all. It will be too late for me. Therefore, he asked with a sense of urgency, make haste to help me, O Lord. David repeated the request for emphasis. He made it twice. Make haste, O God, to deliver me. Make haste to help me, O Lord. So, this repetition for emphasis. But he changed how he addressed God. In the repetition and the second time, he used Lord in Hebrew, Yahweh. And Yahweh is the covenant name of God. When God appeared to Moses in the burning bush and made covenant with him, he told him, my name is I am the being, which means Jehovah, Yahweh. God is always near and with us, never far away. He hears our prayers immediately and acts on them at the best possible time according to his will. St. Augustine says, Now, however being in tribulation, let us especially say, O God, to my aid make speed. Let them be confounded and fear that seek my soul. Here Christ is speaking, because he is the head, and whether the head is speaking or the body of Christ is speaking, he Christ is speaking because he said, Inasmuch as you have done it to one of the least of mine, to me you have done it. So the persecution that fell on the martyrs fell on Christ. Do you remember when he appeared to St. Paul, he told him, Soul, soul, why do you persecute me? So Christ here is speaking to the Father because he is the head of the body. And the body has the martyrs as members in the body of Christ. Verse 2 and 3. Let them be ashamed and confounded who seek my life. Let them be turned back and confused who desire my hurt. Let them be turned back because of their shame who say, aha, aha. So three times he said, let them be ashamed and confounded. Let them be turned back and confused. Let them be turned back in verse 2 and 3. So in these verses, David prays for contrasting result for the ungodly and the godly. Verse 2 and 3, he's speaking about the ungodly. Verse 4, he's speaking about the godly. And definitely the result will be different for the ungodly than the godly. So considering, concerning the ungodly in verse 2 and 3, David prayed that God would turn back his enemies and cause them to be confused, to be confounded. 
Not only does he want God to come quickly with haste, he knows what he wants God to do when he arrives. He wants God to shame and confound the adversaries of his soul, those who are seeking his soul or those who are planning to hurt him. It implies the certainty that they would not be successful in their plans or would be hindered in their purposes. Those who desire his hurt, he wants to be turned all around and put to confusion. So David is essentially praying here that the conscience of his persecutor would make them regret what they had been doing. So when he said in verse 3, let them be turned back because of their shame, what does it mean of their shame? To regret what they were doing and to return back to God. He prays that they feel shame and that they turn back in disgrace. So this request again is to those who seek his life, is a prophecy of what will dwell upon them rather than a curse from him against them. If they did not repent, if they did not return back to God, this will happen to them. So the prayer is for a divine act of justice, a reversal of fates in which the enemy's evil intent will rebound upon their own heads. But as I told you, this psalm also can be a psalm of Christ himself praying to the Father. So if this psalm is spoken by Christ, it was a very appropriate prayer that the purposes of those who would defeat his plan in coming to the world and save the world might be let down. Who desire my hurt as understood of the Lord Jesus Christ, this would refer to the times when his life was in danger, especially before his time has come. The economy of salvation has to be fulfilled in the fullness of time, in the appointed time. And those who mock the godly, saying, aha, aha, need to be turned around as recompense. These words refer to enemies who take great delight and joy in the suffering of innocent. The word aha, aha, refers to great delight and joy in the suffering of the righteous. This has the sense of scornful mocking. Aha, aha are words of expressing joy. It was bad enough that David's enemies wanted him dead, but they added to this, they poured ridicule on him. So not only they wanted him dead, but they poured ridicule on him. In the same way it happened with the Lord Jesus Christ. Many exalted at Jesus' suffering on the cross. Those who gloried in having triumphed over the Lord Jesus Christ and congratulated each other on it. Verse 4, 
Let all those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. The difference, the ungodly were seeking the soul of David, but the godly are seeking God. So let all those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. And let those who love your salvation say continually, let God be magnified. So the psalmist can no longer be satisfied with mere prayer for himself. But he extended his supplication and made it cover the whole body of Christ, the whole body of the faithful, all those who seek you. And as he prophesied confusion to his persecutors, now he is predicting joy to the followers of God in the same form. In verse 3, who seek the psalmist life say aha aha in verse 4 those who are seeking the Lord always say let God be magnified compare the difference those who seek the Lord say continually let God be magnified but those who seek David's soul say aha aha what a big difference so, by way of contrast, those who seek God should be blessed. Let them rejoice and be glad in you. But those who seek David's soul, let them be ashamed. All those who seek the glory of God, who love him and put their trust in him, rejoice and be glad. It is divine and unspeakable joy. So the confusion and humiliation of the wicked gives opportunity for the righteous to rejoice in God. How come? Not only because they are set free from persecution when God turned back the conspiracies of the wicked so the righteous will be set free from persecution. But this is not the only reason why they rejoice and be glad. But because they see in it when God actually turn back the wicked. It is a proof of God's righteous sovereignty and the unfolding of his purposes of salvation. It would be impossible for David to say this unless he himself found some measure of joy and gladness of God despite his urgent problem. He is in immediate need of help so he is in urgent problem but in spite of this he is rejoicing and is glad in the Lord how he defines the righteous he defines the righteous by two definitions the first one let those who seek God so in the world there are those who ignore God and live as if God does not exist Instead of worshipping and fearing him as they should, they take his name in vain. But there are the other group who care about what God thinks. They read what God says in his word in the scripture. They cry out to God for mercy and seek to live according to his revealed will in the scripture. 
These are the ones that seek after God. That's the first definition of the righteous, those who seek God. But in the second half of verse 4, David draws another definition or another distinction between wicked and righteous. The wicked couldn't care less for God's salvation. They don't even want to be saved. But on the other hand, that is the second definition for the righteous. The righteous love the salvation of God. And if one loves the salvation of God, he will have more reason to praise and worship God and magnify his holy name. That's why he said, let all those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. And let those who love your salvation say continually, let God be magnified. So these are the two definitions of the righteous, seeking God and loving the salvation of God. Verse 5, last verse. But I am poor and needy. Make haste to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. So the psalmist is poor and needy. And this is his argument to plead for God's need to make haste. Why shouldn't it delay because I am poor and needy? So David could combine his sins of great joy in God with a realistic fact of his present need. Yes, I am rejoicing in the Lord, but I am poor and needy. That's why do not delay. He is secure in the truth that God cared for and thought about him. But David again appealed to God to be his helper and deliverer. He needed God to do this without delay. He told him, you are my helper and my deliverer, O Lord, do not delay. Poor and needy, in Hebrew, the word poor conveys the idea of poverty. Needy conveys the idea of affliction. And both are applicable to Christ. He was poor and he suffered. So David appealed to God on the grounds that he had no other help or deliverer. You are my helper. You are my deliverer. You are the only one. David would not look to self or to gods of the nations. God would answer this complete dependence on him. When we rely on God completely, not relying on our power, on money, on connection, then God actually will answer when we are completely depending on him. And the psalmist urges divine haste four times in this psalm. Two times in verse 1 and two times in verse 5. So he began with it in verse 1, repeating himself. Then he repeated again twice at the end of the psalm. But he knows his condition. He is poor and needy. And this is the basis of his urgent plea. Praying this way magnifies the Lord. When you pray in this way and admitting that without God we cannot do anything and we are poor and need and we need him this in itself 
magnifies and glorifies the Lord. So even as David drew distinction between the wicked in verse 2 and 3 and himself, he humbles himself and acknowledges that without God's salvation, he is nothing. Therefore, as we condemn the wicked, we should at the same time be humble. For we would be lost in our wickedness if it were not for the salvation of God. Nobody actually can say I am righteous in himself. All of us are sinners. The difference between the wicked and the righteous, the wicked did not trust in God or rely on God, but the, the righteous rely on God for salvation. So if I'm speaking, when I, I judge the actions of the wicked, if I'm speaking out of pride like the Pharisee, I will not be saved. I need to be humble. I need to be humble. That's why he said, I am poor and needy. Poverty for the sake of the Lord make, make God haste to save and not to delay. Poverty in spirit and the optional poverty in the body, asceticism, for the sake of the Lord, these are two wings of prayer. St. Augustine says, What are you to do then, poor and needy? What you should do, poor and needy one? Beg before the gate of God. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. And what are the alms? Let the beatitude answer. Blessed are the poor in spirit. So when we are poor in spirit, we get to receive the kingdom of heaven. For there is the kingdom of heaven. This concludes Psalm 70. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.